Some of you have a story to tell that you have never told anyone. And some of you are wondering if that story should find its way to a journalist. Where would you go? How does that even work? What all goes into the process and what do you need to know to make it out on the other side? Today, I am joined by two friends who answer those questions as we pull back the curtain to show you what it's like to go on the record for a journalist. Keep listening. This is going to be a great episode. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned with their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all that is not good or true, this is the place for you. Hey friends, before we dive into today's conversation, I wanted to let you know that just this week, we kicked off the Untangled Faith Book Club. Our first book is The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb by Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strobel. It's going to be so fun to experience this book with listeners of the podcast. If you are interested in learning more about this and the other benefits of supporting the Untangled Faith podcast, check out patreon.com slash untangledfaith. That's patreon.com slash untangledfaith. I'll leave a link in the show notes. This is an episode I decided I wanted to do late last fall. I put out a call to some of my friends on Twitter asking if anyone wanted to join me to share their experience with going on the record and telling their story to a journalist. Two amazing women raised their hands and said they would be happy to join me for this conversation. And to make it even more fun, they are both named Lori. I promise I'll do my very best to help you figure out which one is talking as we're having this conversation. I recorded with them separately, but I've cut up the conversations to fit the flow of the podcast. You get to drop in on this conversation as I'm talking with Lori Adams Brown. Lori Adams Brown went on the record with religion journalist Julie Roy's and shared her experience under the leadership of Andy Wood, who has just recently taken a position at Saddleback Church as the successor to Rick Warren. I'll have a link in the show notes to her story. Here we go. All right. I have some questions for you. Okay. I'm I'm ready to talk about this because I think there are people that are curious about this process of telling your story. Yeah. And especially like if, if they have a story that maybe they should talk to a journalist about. So I want to know what made you decide to tell your story publicly on the record with a journalist? Well, as you could imagine, it was not a split second decision. Um, Mm -hmm. It was not spontaneous. The cost was very much counted both by me and my husband. It was a very prayerful consideration where we took advice and wise counsel from our village that has walked with us for years. And it was not hasty. It was not early on in our process at all um, to go on the record with a journalist. Now, all that being said, my story was not a secret because I was not, you know, hiding it under a bush. I was letting that light shine so that people could see God's good works through our story from the very beginning of being fired for calling mm-hmm. out abuse. Um, so my story here in the Silicon Valley among my friends, even those at Echo Church who had come to me afterwards and said, oh, I heard you left and went to a new ministry. And then I was not under any NDA. And so I didn't lie to them. I didn't cover yeah. up or use spin or image management. I said, oh, I, I didn't quit. I don't have a new ministry. And my hus- we were both fired. And so that cat was out of the bag from the very beginning. 
um, which led to other questions and dispelling other false narratives. So my story was not a secret. And my husband and I grew up missionary kids and had been um, overseas for 20 years doing ministry ourselves and then had been, you know, for a couple of years pastoring at this church, Echo Church here in Silicon Valley. And so we just have a lot of connections. So any of our friends that know us well knew our story. Mm -hmm. And because we understood that to walk through that trauma, we needed to tell our story to people who would believe and empathize with us. That's how you heal from trauma. Yeah. So I did get contacted early on. Um, We were, the day, um, February 2021 is when Felipe Santos was in a meeting with my husband and my husband said to him, that meeting you had with Lori in December was abusive. And that's when we were essentially fired in that conversation that I wasn't even in. Um, but a couple months after that, I was contacted by someone at World Magazine. And mm-hmm. they were doing an article on NDAs and had heard that I hadn't signed mine. And so was that Emily Bells? It's uh, somebody who's no longer there. So, um, But I mean, World Magazine has had some turnover. So anyway. I talked, I think I talked to that same journalist. Oh, did you? That's so funny. Not for the article, but later. I think her name is Emily. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think I was contacted by a different one, but they may have been collaborating on the same story and okay. it's possible they've written more than one <laughs> because okay. it's such a big deal. Yeah. But um, this was right before or maybe right around the time that the Church of England was banning NDAs as a whole. So um, anyway, but I just said, well, I'm not really ready to speak to a journalist on the record with my name at this point, because our life had had a nuclear bomb hit it. I have three children that had lost all their friends, their youth leaders, their church. Um, It was still locked down COVID schooling time. So we were, you know, kids were in online school. And so um, there was just a lot we were walking through and we just knew that (laughs) going public like that would invite something we weren't really ready for. And we were both unemployed, trying to pick up the pieces of our lives um, and, you know, trying to figure out what, how to feed our family basically. And so yeah. just wasn't really ready for that additional layer. <laughs> There's always multiple layers in these scenarios. So that was our particular case. But, um, you know, f- from February, 2021 until June, 2022, something significant changed. And that's that Andy Wood was, um, offered the role to be lead pastor of Saddleback Church. And so my phone just that's started a immediately. high profile. Yeah, that's a really high profile church. It, lots oh, and yeah. Lots of people it's are impacted. Of, yeah, it's like 20,000 people-ish. It's one of the largest churches here in North America and California for sure. And so I think that was a significant thing that we had gone through enough healing um, with a whole village of healers around us of various kinds. And so had gotten to a place where it felt like maybe we should consider warning others about this wolf situation. But I still initially did not want to go that route. I don't talk publicly about all the details of that because there are some private conversations we had behind the scenes because our goal was to resolve this behind closed doors so that it didn't have to be so embarrassing for Andy and his family and others, Felipe as well. I mean, These are people we still care about. Um, Mm -hmm. But we also knew that we couldn't have this sort of blood on our hands, you know, that we had an opportunity to say something and couldn't. So when the back channels didn't work, when the 
faux investigation was a sham mm-hmm. and a cover up. Um, yeah. I mean, from the beginning of the announcement, um, June 2nd, I think it was, I was at my twins, um, eighth grade graduation. And the next day was my oldest high school graduation. So we had family in town and I was, um, my phone was blowing up throughout both of those graduations with reporters and friends and everybody. So I was contacted by four major reporters and I was not ready to give my story. Um, Julie Royce was one of them, Bob Smiatana, um, of religion news service. And then, um, Robert Downen of the Houston Chronicle, who's covered a lot of the SBC abuse, um, mm-hmm. very well. Sarah Pulliam Bailey of the Washington Post, who's done a lot around the church abuse situation, especially SBC. Um, but I just, I wasn't ready. I was like, I'm in graduation mode. I'm celebrating my 25th wedding anniversary in London and Scotland next week. I'm not going to do this, you know? Yeah. But when all the back channels didn't work and we met private, privately with people um, that could have made changes, but they were shut out in the situation at Saddleback, um, we realized we we needed to consider being courageous enough to warn the sheep about this wolf. And since we don't have NDAs, we're one of the only ones that can. Yeah. And so the echo survivor community that we know of, um, cause many of them we were working with. So even if they have NDAs, we saw things happening while we were on staff with them or there's variations of the story we were a parts of. And so, um, we knew about these. And so those were conversations going on and it was, um, it was just clear, like, if anybody does it, it has to be us and we can do it together. So yeah, that's kind of why we spoke out. It was not a rash decision. Yeah. It wasn't your first choice. No, it was definitely not. Nobody wants to do this, but we did. Mm -hmm. So, so what made you decide to go with Julie when you had these other options? Was it that these people wanted to talk at a certain time? And since you weren't ready at that time, they just weren't interested later. So how did it come about that you did? No, it was a very intentional. Yeah, no, it was a very intentional choice to choose Julie. She was my very first choice. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to go about this. So like I said, it was a very calculated decision. Our goal was not to get famous. Our goal was not to burn anything down. Our goal was not to get more Instagram followers. I still have private Instagram and Facebook because I have children and haven't really wanted to just put that out to the world um, on my personal accounts, not for my podcast, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, it was not any kind of trying to climb any kind of tower of popularity, which this would be a really strange route if that's where you were going. Um, yeah. I have zero desire to be in the news, um, especially in this way. So my goal in it, my husband and I, our goal was we want to restore the church. We, we are the church. We believe in the church and we love the, the global church. Mm-hmm. So we felt like this was an inside conversation. Um, Saddleback is a big enough church where, you know, presidents have been prayed over by the previous pastor there. Rick Warren, his book is Um, The Purpose Driven Life was a book that was sold, you know, worldwide many, many times over. And so, but Mm -hmm. it's still, you know, a church. And so we felt like this was an inside conversation. Um, Not that we don't invite other people involved. And if like lawyers need to get involved in the Justice Department, such as what's going on with the SBC, great. And I have a lot of admiration for secular reporters like Robert Downen of Houston Chronicle. Like he's such a hero Mm -hmm. to Southern Baptists. Um, However... I knew that Julie exclusively covered abuse in the church. 
and is trying to restore the church. And that's her heart. And so mm-hmm. I knew that she had, this was not her first rodeo. This is her expertise. She sort of knows the pattern and how it works. I'd followed her work for years and she does deep investigative work. And I felt like this, we did this out of love to protect sheep. Yeah. And so we knew that that was her heart and exposing the darkness to the light is how it happens. And so we knew that she would have enough information having done this for so long to, to be thorough. And so, yeah, she was absolutely our first choice. And to this day, I've still not given an interview to Robert Downen or Sarah Pulliam Bailey. I'm not saying I would never, but it was Mm -hmm. not my first choice. Well, it speaks a lot to what you said, what you saw in Julie's work and that I understand that the work that she has done has changed my life. And I didn't know her at all when I first stumbled. You know, the first thing I heard of her was when she did that big article about James McDonald in World Magazine. And that's the first time that I had heard about her. And it was reading that. I was like, oh, crap. This sounds too familiar. Yeah. And yeah, so it was very crucial it's just really a pivotal thing. So now that you've met the first Lori, I want to introduce you to Lori Harding. Lori Harding also went on the record with Julie Roy's. She had several experiences with pretty high profile churches and leaders, first at Coral Ridge Presbyterian in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and then at Grace Community Church in Boca Raton, Florida. I'll link to her full story in the show notes. I also wanted to note that when Lori Harding and I were recording, I failed to notice that I didn't have great audio quality for her. So her audio is a little more distorted and she sounds farther away. I should have caught that right away, but I didn't. I've done my best to clean up that audio. I started my conversation with her by asking her about what made her decide to go on the record. Um, Honestly, that came about through a mutual friend. And so she was in the process of telling her story with Julie and that friend of Lori's. Her name is Lauren. She heard Lori's story and told her it was important enough to share with a journalist. She put her in contact with one of the reporters who worked with Julie Royce. So that's kind of how it started. I had it wasn't like one day I woke up and said, "Let me, you know, contact Julie Royce or another journalist." That it just kind of was like, okay, maybe maybe there is something to this. Maybe yeah. And talking with Lauren, she was like, "There's something valuable here for you to share," and because you dealt with. A, a pretty well-known institution, pretty well-known figures in, in the world. So in the Christian world, especially like evangelical world, um, they impact a lot of people. They have a lot of influence. So I'm sure that goes into it. So wh- what made you trust Julie personally? What was that like, those initial conversations and and what helped you decide to say, okay, I think she I think she can do this. You know, I didn't know Julie, but of course I followed her and, you know, read and listened to her podcast. Um, but I think, you know, it was after my first conversation with her, we spoke by phone and I felt very comfortable. She has her own story. Um, so she's not, you know, a stranger to this kind of um, evangelical world of abuse, right? So yeah. I felt very comfortable talking with her. Uh, I also spoke with one of her board members and that was very helpful. She's an attorney and I found that 
conversation very beneficial as well. And I remember one of the things she said to me, the attorney said to me was, you know, you have to remember Julie's a reporter and she, and she's going to get the story. And I hadn't really thought about it in such like a blunt way, but it is true. Right. I mean, she is a journalist. And so, um, so I really had, that really did, it didn't stop me, but it did just make me think a little more seriously and contemplate the process and the outcome and what the consequences could or would be. So how did you interpret that? Like, what does that mean? Like she's a journalist and she's going to get the story. She's going to ask really hard questions. Um, she's not going to back off just because, you know, uh, of, of past trauma, you know, she wants to get the story. She wants to tell the story uh, so that other people can benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And so um, she never pressured me. Um, she was always, you know, very willing to go at my own speed. Um, I, I love that you mentioned that because when you go on the record with a journalist, a journalist that wants to be respected and wants people that's putting their name on the line, their name, whether they are a, a private person that does their own thing, like Julie, who she has a board, but like, she does not work for another editor that has to approve things. Um, but these journalists have to be trustworthy. They have, people have to, they're only as valuable as their word is. And so I would imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong here, that meant she had to probe in as much as she could in a, to make sure that you had some, that you were standing behind what you were saying. And if you had any other documentation, so is that, is that accurate? Would you say? Very accurate. I mean, and this honestly was one of the reasons I, I was happy to be working with her because she doesn't do anything on opinion or rumor or hearsay. One of the things that she found valuable about my story and what I brought was the receipts. I have a lot of documentation and what, in fact, when it came time and the podcast went out to the world, it was so obvious. Yeah. And, you know, there are people that have stories to tell that are very valid, but Julie might not be able to take them because either there isn't the documentation of the corroboration there, or it doesn't, in some ways, some of these journalists have to decide what is the what is the, what am I trying to share? What, what is the angle of, of the point of sharing this? Because it isn't just to say this is a bad person and bad things happen. When you're going with a journalist like that, oftentimes it has to have some sort of impact on a larger community. And it it's not, not that if you are small potatoes, you don't matter, but it also could also have to do with timing. So if your issue had to do with something that's really coming up a lot in conversations, that might be something that you might get a journalist to be more interested in talking about. Where if you don't have all of the ever really big thing, maybe they have three other people that could say sort of similar experiences. And that would be another way that that would work. But I, I also, I resonate with what you said about being glad that she's like, she doesn't, you can't just come to her and say this happened and she'd be like, oh yes. Okay. Let's do this right now because she wants to know that she can vouch for what's happening. And then 
even somebody putting their name out there publicly. That's another thing. Like, I doubt she would have been willing to write an article about it, even like not do a podcast, but write about it and just say it was an anonymous source. There comes a time during the crafting of an article that journalists work on fact-checking. And that's exactly what Julie Royce did in this case. As Lori Harding shared with me, Julie rolled up her sleeves and got to work and called some of the people that Lori had referenced in her account. Yeah, be prepared. That's a good thing. Be prepared to have a journalist often is going to give a chance for the other side to speak. And there are different ways to do that. And it's really tricky. I think it takes a really good, wise journalist to be able to do that and share in a way that doesn't traumatize the person with the, with less power and not just make it sound like a, he said, she said situation. Yeah. I mean, I, throughout the process, I always felt like I had the uh, ability to pull the the plug on it, you know, if, if it felt too overwhelming or not the right timing or so one of my situations, the one with, the high profile church Coral Ridge, I did not have an NDA. So okay. I, didn't, I was free to speak and, you know, about that. Lori Harding did have an NDA with the other church. And if you've listened to her story, you'll understand why she felt free to speak, even though she had signed that document. Again, you will find a link to her story in the show notes. So in both situations, I felt fine, but it was the one that I was still tied to the NDA with that I was, you know, a little not concerned, but. You don't know what will happen, There's right? There's still fear, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's the sad reality is that people that have gone through this kind of trauma, even if you know for sure, you still, there's still fear. What are, you know, yeah. what are they going to say? What are they going to do? It's a reality. Did you do anything particularly to um, prepare for the interview itself and for like the when you knew that this podcast was going to drop in the world? So to prepare for the actual podcast, I just, um, because I was producing so many documents and putting together um, timelines, um, that was really how I prepared. And that really helped me to kind of remember the, you know, the specifics and, and the timeline of each situation. I think that that was just good preparation for me. As far as like personally, like taking care of myself, I, I started um, physical fitness Mm. last fall and that has been very helpful for me. So really just have tried to keep that up. That's like a spa for my brain. You know, I can just shut off my brain while I'm out. And so, you know, kept doing that and just uh, took breaks from it. And we're going to jump back to my conversation with the other Lori now. Here's where I asked Lori Adams Brown how she prepared to go on the record. How did you prepare then to actually have that conversation? And I don't remember now if you just did, if she did an article with you or if she did a podcast or if she did both, what was, how did she end up We didn't, yeah, we did just, um, we didn't do a podcast, but what we decided to do was she did an article. She actually did multiple articles, Mm -hmm. um, but one of the articles she did with us, she included video clips Mm -hmm. of certain parts of our conversation Mm -hmm. and included those with the article. We decided to go that route. Um, There were some very intentional choices that were made with us, with her. Mm -hmm. She's the expert on this, but she also took our input. And so, um, I I mean, it was actually, it's not easy 
I, I want to be clear, it's not easy to go to reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Julie was very pastoral with us in the whole process. I will, I can vouch for that with her and my own personal experience. And my husband would say the same. She pastored us better than the two men who were supposedly our pastors right. who had hurt us um, and abused us. Um, so, but she doesn't have to be, that's mm-hmm. not her role. Yeah. She's a reporter, yeah. but, but she was, she was very trauma informed and, um, just very, very kind and, and caring and sensitive to yeah. our situation. However, it, it did take a lot of preparation on my part and a lot of after work. So I, um, at the time and still am, uh, you know, involved in DBT therapy, which is a lot of body work um, because the body keeps the score. And that's Mm -hmm. the book I read after my abuse. And even though I didn't experience physical abuse or sexual abuse, you know, I've heard many say, including Rachel Den Hollander and others who are, you know, very involved in the abuse community, if it's a psychological wound or a spiritual injury, um, emotional abuse, you still carry it in your body. Mm -hmm. And so the work I had to do and still have to do is do things that make my body feel safe and help calm my autonomic nervous system when red flags are setting me off, right? And I never had that before I was abused by these two men. One of the things that helped me and my DBT therapy around the summer of 2022 was floating in a pool. It's almost like this kind of womb-like state for me. Everybody's body is different, but floating has been very good body work for me. And so I had to spend a while floating in the pool outside, getting some sunshine, just um, regulating. Like I listened to things on my headphones and so a lot of auditory stuff. Like I just had to calm my nervous system before I even went into the interview with Julie. Mm-hmm. And and then afterwards, I had to do a lot of that kind of work. So it took a lot of time pre and post yeah. to get ready for that and to do that. But the interview itself was like four hours because – it's not therapy sitting with a reporter. Yeah, it's, there's <laughs> when, a lot there. I, <laughs> there is a lot to go over. Yeah, mm-hmm. there is. Like, there's, and I appreciate that. That's what investigative reporters do. You know, like a therapist is going to try to help you understand how you're feeling mm-hmm. and all that. And it's it can be very soothing, although it be, can be hard. Reporters are going to double check you and say, oh, well, did this happen? And what was the date? And they're going to make sure they're not catching you in a lie because they want to tell the truth. So, um, right. It can be very re-triggering. It can be very traumatic. It's a lot of hard work, even when they're very pastoral and trauma-informed like Julia. So it was exhausting. My husband and I were really exhausted after those four hours. Did you know that yeah. she would push you on some of these things just to make sure that what you were saying was trustworthy? Were you prepared for that? Did she tell you that that sort of thing happened because I, I truly believe you can be trauma-informed and also hold that while being having your journalistic integrity where um, there has to be some long conversations and checking on certain things. So did you know that would happen? And did that happen for you? Um, I think we both assumed it would because we're, you know, Why we're in our 40s. Why should take your we, word for it, right? Yeah. Right. We understand investigative journalism. We have friends that are journalists. And so we understand how it works. We we both have master's degrees and, you know, we understand research, you mm-hmm. know. And so our assumption was she was going to fact check everything and that she wouldn't just do a story with people who were 
So she had already pre-fact checked some things before we did the actual interview. So there was a bit of back and forth with some of that along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I appreciate that. She she was very thorough. She t- she did many phone calls. She, she We had to come up with a Google Doc of dates and names and times and texts. And yeah, I mean, it was like a bit like being in a courtroom. That sounds familiar. But I, yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, I, I wanted that. It's, it's not important. therapy. <laughs> no. <laughs> but there is something that helps you make sense of things when you sit down and figure out like, when did this happen? How did this be like, what, what was I messaging you during that time? Like, what are like looking at text messages and screenshots yeah. and, you know, putting it back into context has been a really interesting thing to like, oh my goodness. I have this conversation yeah. from right in the middle of all of that. And you don't necessarily know at the time that it'll be helpful to you later. It's just, yeah, sometimes you find those things. One of the questions I was most interested in hearing the answer to was how anxious these women were as they got ready for the day their story was shared publicly. I started with asking Lori Harding. Were you worried about the day of like what? Like, were you worried that the day that it came out, like who you would hear from or getting pushback? Yeah, I worried. Worried is probably not a right word. I was, um, I was, and I wasn't anxious, but I was definitely thinking it, thinking about all the people in my sphere. Um, and that means family, friends, uh, people from both, you know, churches. Uh, and so I was starting to try and like, picture people in my mind and like, what would they think? Lori shared that she had quite a few family and friends who had surface level understanding of what she had endured, but most of them had not heard all of these details. I did hear from a lot of people and it was across a lot of different segments of of people in my life. Yeah. Did you have anybody ahead of time that you knew wouldn't want you to speak that you maybe were close with? No one. No one. I mean, everyone has been so supportive, wanting this just to come out, you know, recognizing how difficult it is. Just a lot, a lot of support. And then, you know, from my immediate family to hear my niece speaking through that story, I think was a lot for them. Mm -hmm. There's something about hearing it all at one point that kind of gives that the appropriate weight to what happened, I think. Did you listen to it yourself? I did. Several times, actually. Several times. Yeah. Because people would comment on different things and people would reach out to me and you know we would talk about different aspects of it. I would go back and listen and try and put myself in their shoes. You know, everybody saw things from a different angle. You know, they were di- at different places in the story. Uh, and so I found that really interesting. You know, every single person was supportive. So I also, even though I have a podcast, sometimes I listen to myself. What did I say? <laughs> How did that sound? And even our own story, like listening, I'm like, that's an interesting story. And I lived it. Well, I said at the end of recording with Melissa and Lydia, a uh, episode we just did. Wow, we are really smart, interesting people. <laughs> I asked Lori Adams Brown if she was worried about pushback after she spoke out publicly. So as you were getting closer to knowing that this is all going to be out there, did you have, were you worried about any particular people that you knew would push back on you speaking up? Short answer is yes, (laughs) but 
my husband and I are, you know, different personality types. So um, I'm an eight wing seven on the Enneagram and he's a two wing three on the Enneagram. And so obviously our processing of what others would think. Um, and then I'm a T on the Myers-Riggs and he's an F. And so we just, we process that decision very differently. Um, and we, but we made it as a team, like we always have, you know, and for t- 25 years of marriage at that point. And so, but yeah, definitely we had particular people in mind, um, that we were like, okay, how are they going to process this? And then I think the reality is, I mean, I think most people know when you whistle blow, you're going to be discredited somehow. There's, Mm -hmm. it's typical. Like you can predict it before it happens, especially for women. It's pretty typical what they're going to (laughs) say. I was in Scotland, right? I said, um, they're crazy. Yeah. I I was in Scotland, as I mentioned, when the news had just rolled out like a few days later, because we were on our way there. And um, we were seeing all these historical sites about burning witches. And it's I was just laughing to myself. I think I took a picture and posted it on Instagram by Edinburgh Castle in Scotland. I was like, yeah, I mean, same, same, but different. Now it's yeah. just on Twitter. You know, like I didn't go into this expecting people to say, oh, yeah, this is 100% on the up and up. But I think that unhealthy is often used, crazy. Wounded is the particular wording that mm-hmm. um, my two – abusive brothers in Christ, Andy Wood and Felipe Santos would say they they have this wound hunt. So instead of a witch hunt, I guess it's more like a wound hunt. And so the narrative is that I was wounded before I came to Echo and therefore it wasn't them. They mm-hmm. were super gentle. You know, I'm just unhealthy. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a it's a thing they say f- to all about all the whistleblowers. They said it to p- me about people when I was first coming in that had been doing a version of whistleblowing that ended up getting NDAs. But yeah, so I didn't um, know the people per se that would necessarily be upset, but I knew there would be some Mm -hmm. and I knew I would lose friends and I knew that people would say, why are you stirring the pot and all that kind of stuff. Um, And I knew there would be a lot of head in the sand, mainly Mm -hmm. because when you're in a circle of abuse, like that tight circle is, um, there are these cult-like behaviors that go on, and the whole "you'll get goss- you'll get fired for gossiping" was one of the ways to silence the narrative, very um, Dave Ramsey style. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, and it's just when you're trying to over the years, it was like it's about 15 years. Echo Church has been going. This has been a pattern all along. So. I met some of the earliest whistleblowers who have NDAs and who were abused. And then there's just many along the way that I've met. And the pattern is still the same. They discredit you in the same ways. They say, why did you do that? Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But I think that really we paid a lot of financial consequences for speaking out. So before we ever spoke out, um, I think there were some people who thought we probably would um, when – Andy got hired at Saddleback. It was such a, now this isn't just the, this church we're trying to protect. Now there's a whole other 20,000 people on our conscience. And so, um, I had tweeted, but without saying names, I had just been very vague in a tweet about something. And so that particular thing made one of my husband, my husband raises support for his uh, ministry role. He does here with like Afghan refugees and different things. And so um, we were in 
London, had not yet spoken out. Nobody knew we were in contact with journalists. My husband got contacted by somebody who's friends with Andy Wood, who had been our good friend at the church. And um, he basically said he was pulling his financial support from my hus- from my husband's ministry and had basically told other people too as well. So before even speaking out almost as a oh. threat, um, we lost $1,000 a month. Uh, over $1,000 a month in support, which is food that would go into the mouths of my kids and feed their hungry tummies. Like that's a big deal. And we had not yet even spoken out. And at that point, I think it was like, we were even more resolved. Like if you're ever in a storm like that, where you feel like you're a threat and you're under attack, you have two choices. Mm -hmm. You cower in fear and you stay silent and you live kind of with the mafia at your door the rest of your life and you're never free. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were like, this is where we stand, you know, this is where we say, no, you can't pay us off. You can't financially do this to keep us like we didn't sign the NDA tied to severance and insurance for our family because our voice is ours and that's God given. And that's what God gave us and God created with God's own voice. And you don't steal that from people that is spiritually abusive to steal the voice of the image of God and someone else. Yeah. And that's why NDAs to me are abusive in themselves from churches. So it's why we fight so hard to get the NDAs released. Yeah. And so, yeah, we paid a big consequence even before we spoke out. Yeah, it was still the right thing to do. And some people have cut us off uh, or not wanted to hear, but over time. So people say, oh, you know, they're just there to capitalize on this whole thing. (laughs) Which is the opposite. What would you say to that? Yeah, oh, my goodness. I, it's like just you have to just sit for a second and take out your limbic part of your brain and put on your very cognitive part of your brain and think about that reality. If you were trying to be popular or famous or increase your ministry or increase your social followers, why in the world would you do something that is automatically going to crucify you the way it's so easy yeah. to discredit a whistleblower by saying they're crazy or unhealthy or greedy or trying to take mm-hmm. a good man mm-hmm. down, like all the same. It's the same rodeo every time. It puts you at odds with the very people that you don't want to be yeah. at odds with, like your neighbors, right. your community. If I was going to try to be famous or yeah. popular, I would never choose that route. Never. What was it like for you as you're waiting for this article to come out? Like, did you know when it was going to be published? And like, what was that feeling like? And and the like aftershocks of it, like, okay, it's out. We'll hear the answer to that question next week when I share part two of this conversation. There was just too much great content for one episode. I hope you learned something helpful as you listen today. I am so grateful for these women and their courage. Don't forget that I have linked to their stories in the show notes. You can find the show notes in the app where you play this podcast, but sometimes those links get a little jumbled along the way. If that's the case, you can always find show notes by going to untangledfaithpodcast.com and clicking on episodes. If you're on social media, I would love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. Today's episode is also a great one to discuss with a friend. So forward this episode to your bestie and tell them they need to listen because you want to talk about it. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. 
This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.